Welcome everybody to our fourth series of podcasts that coincide with the launch of our fourth issue of Makuk PCLM. My name is Chastity Davis Alphonse. I'm a proud member of the Claw Emma Nation and married into the Silcotine Nation and super thrilled today to have um, Merle Alexander here, who is a uh, um, sort of a prolific thinker, an amazing lawyer, and has um, we've been so grateful to have Merle's support uh, for our magazine since day one, and uh, and also just really thrilled to have him here today to speak to a little bit about the theme of indigeneity, um, which you can find his article in this upcoming issue uh, that will be coming out in December. So welcome, Merle. Good to see you. And uh, really thrilled to have some time with you to dive into this uh, really complex but important conversation. Well, thanks so much for having me, Chastity. It's always been, I mean, I've always been such a great supporter, a big supporter of, of the work that, that you're doing. And I really uh, consider it an honor to be involved in the, in, in the work of McCook's Peace Slim. And I also really wanted to take to not um, be fearful of like taking on a hard topic, especially right now, I think, you know, I think indigeneity is so, it's weighing so heavily on so many people's minds. I think it's, you know, I think, I think indigenous advocates like don't shy away from the hard topics. So I was happy to contribute something and hopefully generate a bit more of like a topic, a conversation, lead the conversation a bit where I think and hope it will go. Yes, thank you so much. And, I, and I'm really glad that uh, you brought that up because it is one of those topics that, um, you know, some people shy away from talking about. And, um, and I think that that's why there is a lot of um, ambiguity and vagueness um, when this topic comes up um, in the mainstream, but also like for our communities as a whole. And I agree, I think as, as advocates, we need to be diving in and being willing to have these conversations and to really bring forward some hard truths that um, have affected um, the perception or the beliefs of um, what indigeneity actually is um, for our communities. So really appreciate you um, leaning in and uh, not only writing about this, but uh, being open to uh, actually expanding on your article and your thoughts and, and for being here today. So I, my first question um, it involves talking about the Indian Act, which is, I think, where a lot of the waters get muddied around our indigeneity and so many other things. Um, but for the topic of conversation today about in Indigenous identity. So I think that might be a good place to start is just for our listeners, um, is how does the Indian Act continue to impact Indigenous identity today? Well, I mean, the Indian Act, uh, you know, like, I mean, in some ways it's has great uh, detrimental effect and it also affects none of us <laughs> so i mean i think it doesn't affect the main people who are who are of metis descent it doesn't affect people who are inuit descent i think like the um uh you know the inuit have their almost all i think all the inuit communities have modern day treaties 
and they in those treaties have um full right to determine who is who are the citizens of like the inuit like communities and the nation as a whole so i mean i think for them the relevance of the indian act is never did apply to them and doesn't apply to this day and i think the metis are still trying to are, are still i think that like that they don't have a regulated like a regulated or statutory framework which you know is probably as much a blessing as it is like a, like a hardship, I guess, depending on who you're talking to. But, um, you know, I think they're much more like, you know, they're sort of still working through what their sort of self-governing approaches like on, on that. Um, for First Nations, or, you know, or Indians under the Indian Act, like I think it still has a very profound effect. Um, and it's not something that's dated in history. I think people often sort of think, you know, like when really significant racist like elements that are applying, they think, well, that's still not going on today. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I think the Indian Act is still determining to this day who is like a member and not a member to most First Nations. Like very few First Nations in the country have modern day treaties that determine their the statutory framework for who is a citizen or not. Um, so it does still have a really profound effect of whether or not you're on a membership list for, for your, for a specific band. I guess you could also say in, this, in the same context for First Nations, it could potentially be irrelevant for those who are taking over their shirt, over their membership and leaning less into the Indian Act for determining who is a citizen of their nation and more towards their own Indigenous legal orders or their own First Nations legal orders, I guess more like clearer. I think if you take um, um, some of that's formalized in that I think communities have like have their own membership codes and those are still very colonial driven like for the most part at least the membership codes that I've reviewed like they're still drawing so much they're still based on like a like a an Indian Act framework of trying to determine how many generations, like how, how far can you trace back your ancestry? And then also have operate to exclude certain members. So, I mean, I mean, for clarity, I mean, the, there's those that just First Nations that just solely rely on the Indian Act to determine who's a member or not. There's those that have membership codes and then there's some that have modern day treaties, which allow them to determine their citizenship. But, you know, it's not universal. I still think the majority of First Nations are probably like relying on, on the Indian Act much more than, um, than, than we'd like to admit. And the fact of the matter is that every single time like a, a, a court has the, the ability to determine whether or not the Indian Act is racist and sexist and discriminates against like the whole other variety of sort of like spectrum of, of, of sexual orientation, it almost all of the courts and human rights tribunals always conclude that it is still racist, sexist and colonial in nature. So it's still the most powerful instrument is still like is constantly being determined to be contrary to human to hum, human rights law contrary to the charter 
And of course, contrary to our own legal orders, and that is still the dominant, like determinant fact you hear. Obviously, we've all been hearing a lot how strangely lots of First Nations are really want to lean into the Indian Act. They're leaning into status cards right now, which is such a scary and regressive like stance for 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 um, using a colonial tool against ourselves. Yeah, thank you for laying that out so clearly for the listeners and and for to start setting the context to be able to move forward in this conversation. And I agree. I think that um, I agree with everything you said. And I think that, uh, you know, we the last statement was really powerful, just about like using it against ourselves and and um, and so how do we how do we start like moving back to reclaiming our own customary laws and our own um, protocols and and governance structures and ways of determining membership. I mean that that is individual to each First Nation, and they have a long history of being able to determine who was a member and who wasn't. And you wrote in this issue about customary law, so I'd be interested in hearing from you. What what is it? And what is its legal standing relative relative to other bodies of law in Canada? So, for example, is it considered by the Crown to be as valid and important as a law in an act? Mm. Yeah, well, the syncretic Canada, I mean, uh, I mean, people, I think, are moving away from the term customary law. And I think now, at least in the uh, Aboriginal law or Indigenous law context, people are starting to use the term Indigenous legal orders which is ultimately just to say laws that are of like the indigenous nation, not laws that are, that are like are delegated through some statute. So, I mean, the Canadian courts, like at the Supreme Court of Canada level have clearly said that there's a degree of sovereignty that continues beyond the crown's assertion of sovereignty. And I would say that it's that when they made those sort of statements, things that are internal to the, the First Nation or the Indigenous Nation itself are conclusively remain beyond the Crown's assertion of sovereignty. So we still remain. In other, in other words, I think First Nations still have sovereignty over determining who are their citizens. Um, most of the places where it's been sort of tested, that's just been conclusively affirmed. I think it's why you see the crown sort of allow for membership codes or um, uh, why the crown like doesn't really have much to say or says that's your exclusive jurisdiction determining how you determine who are your leadership or what your electoral process is. Those are things that are internal to the nation. And so since, since like the Syncretic Canada in the Marshall case, like came down now so over now some 15 years ago, like I think it's been pretty like you're on very firm ground, I think, to say that First Nations have the right to determine who are their own citizens. Um, but to conclude that doesn't mean that for many are actually occupying that area. So I think like Indigenous legal orders are very alive and well. And as you were sort of saying, like nations have never stopped determining who's a family member and 
what that family member's rights are. I mean, you're a perfect example, a perfect example of that, right? You probably like, uh, you know, as a Kilian member, like you have a modern day treaty, which of course determines, determines membership and citizenship. Then simultaneously, you'll through familial rights, a body of familial law and the Chicotan nation have that ability to determine like, what are your rights marrying into that nation? I mean, all those things are going on partly by a, affirmation through modern day treaties, but also by just uplifting what is already Ch the Chicotan nation's like body of law. All of that to say that I think that like, that I think that indigenous legal orders are alive and well, we completely can determine who are our own citizens. Yes, I agree. I agree. And it, it is a good example about um, just talking about my own like personal experience of being and with our modern day treaty. And then just the, the you know, the Indigenous um, or the Sokotin like protocols of who's a member of their community, um, uh, whether you're marrying in or, you know, and I remember my my husband, Chief Joe Alphonse talking about um, just, you know, prior to contact that, um, they would accept members into their, like people into their nation. If they lived their values, if they spoke, if they learned to speak the language, if they, you know, um, would, were contributing to the community and they necessarily didn't need to be Sokotin. They could be, you know, from any number of ethnic backgrounds, but they would accept them in as a member of their nation if they followed, you know, those certain protocols. And um, and so it it just is like I like we like you've been saying, and like you know, I said at the beginning of the question is that each nation has their own way of determining that um, who's a member, who's a, a citizen of their their community. Um, and you talk a lot about like your own personal experience in, in your article as well um, about that, uh, your own personal experience and marrying your wife and your children and, and how um, that's all sort of, um, you know, taken place. And did you want to say anything more about that uh, here or expand on any of that here? Yeah, well, I mean, it's um, like the article, really tries to sort of show like one how impoverished the view of relying on the Indian Act is and just brings to like a, a very like simple like and pointed fact that with the sort of colonial and and sort of like sexual discrimination like aspects of the Indian Act when I was first born, I was actually born without a nation. Like I was, like I mean, I, I don't think people from my own community like thought of, thought of it that way. But my mother married a non-status person; she lost her membership in her own band. All right, like in in Kitasu Hayes. and it was only through amending Bill C thirty one that they sort of because of these challenges, these many legal challenges, did it all of a sudden a generation was she sort of re-added to her own membership. And then that became me, gave me like sort of like the a six like art, you know, section six two status under the Indian Act. But even then, if I would have married, if I would have married non-status, then my two sons would have had no First Nation. So you can see like this patchwork or band-aid approach 
like really is this literally a band-aid on like a gaping wound like it's like it's it's the, if you it, all the fixes that have happened to the indian actor trying to fix like a trying to patch like a sinking colonial boat like well only like you the boat's still sinking like it's just only a matter of like it's just patchwork so i mean i think when you when you take the complete contrast of like just applying Hatsuk and, and Simsan law, you know, I give the example of like how there's sort of a, I'm in sort of a really a beautiful time in my life, like where like my own nation is really like claiming me as one of their own. And I give this example of like the, of the, the big house that I attended early this year where It's probably, I mean, you know, in a career like mine, like for it to be one of the most powerful things that ever happened to me in, in Indigenous law, it's like, it's saying something. You know, when I was like, when I was at the big house in, 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 in Bella Bella and they called my son and I up like, to, the, to, the, to the floor and they blanketed us and introduced us to all of our family members, the elders of our family members said, you are, you are hate sick in your home. That's, you know, extremely beautiful and like on, on so many levels, it's so powerful because that's hate sick law, that's hate sick sovereignty alive today in, in the most powerful place that our law can live, which is, well, one in the hearts of the, of the nation, but also in the big house. So it's, um, when you contrast that with like being born with no nation to being like uplifted by your own people, the contrast is great. And then you, like at the same time, in my own, in Kitasu, my my uncle is giving me uh is is to is i will be like the benefactor i'll inherit his 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 traditional name and he's announced this also in the big house so it's sort of like binding a binding transfer and um so i'll be a hereditary chief of a of 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 like of the blackfish so not only will i like you know, when you think when you compare that contrast again of like being born without nation, one nation and being claimed by two, not just being claimed by two, but being uplifted to like a status level that of, of, that is in some ways as high as one can achieve. Now it's just a matter of like what sort of chief will I be? That will determine like what my name, what how my name is uplifted over time. But the contrast of the two bodies of law running in parallel, one which would like one one which would 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 eliminate your citizenship, and the other which would lift you to the highest status. Like I don't think the contrast of it can be any more stark. It's also like I think a real calling for people to say, like, okay, like which body of law do we want to re rely on? I mean, there's a bigger question about whether or not we even rely on the idea of the term indigenous. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I'm Hatsuk and Simsan, you're Tlam and, 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 and Chakotans. Like in a way, like the, this, this, this word, 
that speak have been elevated at the highest levels of you know international law like has you know relying on the idea of it being born indigenous or being like or being like of just like of ancestry and not looking to our own nation's capacity through self-determination to determine who is a citizen or who isn't like relying on someone out on a foreign law to determine who is a citizen to me just seems like that will be a fail continue to be a failed path and it's the path that colonial forefathers would have wanted us to rely upon which i think is why the is the real reason we have to like you know resist resist that i think we also just really need to move away from the impoverished an impoverished view that think that our system there can only be so many citizens of our nation because that's not the way that nations are built like most like at least in my community the process of adoption by a chief to bring in others into the nation to strengthen the nation is something which is trim is a very powerful like form of like of, of creating greater strength like within your nation if you took if you weren't going to uplift that body of adoption law or you were going to say well that's not real you know that's you weren't born like of that nation so we're just going to negate that that doesn't seem like something that is like going to serve first nations you know that doesn't seem like that's going to be uplift our body of law because that's a tradition born like that seems almost at least to my knowledge like something that's very universal to most first nations across the country but the idea that you would take that away from yourself, you would deprive like that power does not seem the act of a sovereign. Yeah, agreed and very powerful. Um, <clears throat> sharing your, weaving in your experience of, of um, the big house and, and, um, and weaving that into the situation is really powerful and moving. So appreciate you sharing that um, here with us today. And you you had talked about um, it being recognized in international law. So I know that there's, you know, many, many people interested in um, with the adoption of, of UNDRIP um, in the House of Commons last year, and also with the adoption of UNDRIP in British Columbia. Um, how does, how does that uh, tie into um, this conversation, if if any. Well, I mean, I think I, I think it's going to you know the, the implementation or UNDRIP like is an affirmative tool, so it doesn't create any rights. I mean, mostly like I think what its very core what UNDRIP does is it uplifts the right of self determination of of First Nations. So to that extent, it uplifts our legal orders. So it is really relevant. I mean, it, it is like a very powerful tool, I think, that can be used in this context. And maybe it might even be more important than it than it would have like normally, because I think there's a general acceptance that like the implementation of UNDRIP in BC and in Canada requires us all to admit that the status quo is not working. And that there's a need for change. And that that change will be driven by Indigenous peoples themselves, 
will be driven by the First Nations and the Indigenous nations of this province. So, if, you know, like, I think that it can be really, that there's a lot of, like, empowerment to harness there. So, I mean, I think that the, the applicability of, of, of it as an affirmative tool could be, like, really great because I think that conversation is so present, I think, for so many nations across, like, you know, it's so relevant right now that people seizing on saying, like, challenging the Indian Act, saying, you know what? Like, well, because under both, both of the federal and provincial statutes say that all BC and Canadian laws must be made consistent with UNDRIP. And there's no way that you can argue that the Indian Act is consistent with UNDRIP. Because there's, there's, that is not going to win, be a winning legal argument for, for any government in any court in Canada. So, I mean, if only if it only triggers that conversation of really having a really like empowered conversation about citizenship, I think that there's a tremendous like it has tremendous uses here. Um, so I think it will be really relevant. I just hope that people <laughs> hope it'll be used in a positive way because similarly, you could through rights of self determination use it in positive and negative ways. You know, which it'll be interesting to see, I think, where this dialogue goes. Um, I think we also do have to be generally careful about thinking of it as all of all First Nations as being having a hom homogeneous like, perspective on it. Because I think, you know, depending on where you are sort of on that colonial, that movement away from a colonial path, I think you could see a range of interactions on how Andrip works, it doesn't work for them. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And uh, um, just to, to start wrapping us up, um, the topic of indigeneity or indigenous identity, First Nations identity, Métis identity, Inuit identity has, you know, been uh, largely uh, in the mainstream, hitting the mainstream over the last, you know, uh, number of years. And, um, and so I think that, you know, if, if, you know, the, the, the general Canadian or people who don't know a lot about um, our history and the Indian Act and laws, um, they start, you know, reading these articles, it can be confusing to them uh, about our identity and our in, in indigeneity. So do you have any sort of advice to people who are just like reading these articles like to um, point them into the direction of how they can become more informed of or or anything like that uh, any any words of advice or words of wisdom beyond what you've shared here today mm. well, that's a big question eh? <laughs> <laughs> um It's, um, I mostly find it just very curious that the mainstream is so interested in, in having a conversation about our citizenship. Like I'm curious, like what's driving that at this time? Because at the end of the day, it's like what I was saying before, like the only, the only 
legal authority that's determined who is a citizen is like the First Nation themselves or the Métis community themselves or the Inuit community themselves of their respective citizen. They're the ones that determine it. The fact that like the there is like a real interest in sort of invalidating Indigenous identity and that that is newsworthy and that certain certain media outlets like seem to be like particularly interested in that it sells it sells right now. I find that very curious. I think that, I mean, I think it, I hope that like that all this conversation about indigenous identity does like arrive at its proper place, which is nation saying that's our right. We'll determine who's our, who is a member end of story and that we don't get caught up ourselves in taking a, like looking at blood quantums or determining like which, how many generations back determine whether or not you're a member of a community that you actually rely on what you were saying before about whether or not people in a way are torn to our culture, to our laws, you know, the, to our values. And you stop sort of trying to use false indicators, you know, like how you were born to determine what your current citizenship is. I mean, that may be a material factor. Maybe that's like a black and white, <laughs> a black and white way of like determining whether or not someone's a citizen or not. But then that would to only focus on those so that sole criteria will breed breed away our nationhood. Like I think those ideas of blend quantum and how many generations back can you trace your, your nationhood, like those are not tools that are designed by us. And when we start using them, like the 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 end the end conclusion will be like less citizens. Then we'll just be like, we'll they'll achieve what was always the purpose of all of these colonial statutes, which is to sort of just enfranchise like indigenous citizens into the mainstream. Then we'll achieve like the you know the we'll achieve what the white paper always wanted to do. I mean, so I mean, I, hopefully, people just see that that's the path that we're on. You know, that that's where that that's where the reliance on status cards and the reliance on like, you know, where, where that's going to take us. And that's, a, you know, it's a there's a lot of humility in accepting that that's the wrong path. And maybe we don't know yet. Maybe, maybe we feel like we're we don't have a good enough sense of what our own sovereignty is. But I think that like. I think that there's also a real intentional, like, there's a real intentional drive to sort of try and measure our sovereignty against the crowns. And when we don't see this modern regulatory framework, we think that our nation, our laws are worth less. 
And I think we need to rely, we have to trace back the fact that customary law, like that all governments and all peoples relied on customary law, including like, including the colonial governments that have assumed sovereignty here. So I don't know, there's a lot there, but <laughs> hopefully some of it's helpful. Definitely, definitely. I think that all of it is, I just, it reminds me of um, when I was, really young and like in my early 20s and I first heard uh, Judith Sayers from the New Channel Nation speak and she had called um, it was the first time I heard anybody say it but the Canadian and the provincial government's junior governments and that um, and just she kind of went on about uh, just how you know they're junior and they're young and they're still trying to sort themselves out and They've made a mess out of our like thousands of years old, um, like indigenous governance and laws and protocols and ways of being and knowing. So when you're speaking, I just I keep hearing her say that, uh, uh, you know, close to two decades ago now. Um, and just I, I agree solely still with what she was saying and what you're saying here as well is that's our path forward. Um, and uh, just want to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to add um, before we before we wrap up. I know there's so many more um, areas we could dive into here, and uh, and you're just a wealth of knowledge, and it's a pleasure to just uh, have the opportunity to um, to listen to you unpack this complex um, conversation. So, anything else that you'd like to add that uh, I haven't asked you? I can't, I can't think, I can't think of anything particularly. I just really, I'm really thankful, like for the opportunity to have like this, to have, have this conversation and not have, and, and have it as this part of a dialogue. I think it is important for people to understand that disagreeing with each other is all part of like furthering this dialogue. And that we can't like, like having polarized views on this topic, like, is not going to serve us well. We need to have like, we need to like lean into our disagreement also to, to, to find out where we actually agree. I think that, um, I think that's the most, I think that'd be the most important part is that we don't get caught in the polarization. That we like we're mindful and that we're like do it in an informed way. Like, I think that would be like the, the wisdom, like, I mean, that's all part of the wisdom that's inherent to us, mm -hmm. you know, that we're the benefactors of. And I think that to me is like the way forward. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I agree. Thank you so much, Merle, for being here with us today, for um, sharing the knowledge um, that you hold as a knowledge keeper for your nations um, you say you belong to two. I'm uh, proud to say that uh, I'm walking alongside of you on this advocacy journey and claim you as one of my relatives as well. So um, just really feel privileged to have the opportunity to chat with you today. And thank you to all our listeners um, who have uh, taken the time to tune in to our fourth uh, podcast series of Makuk P. Salam and uh, and make sure that you download our our newest publication um, that's out this December 
and also look to supporting our magazine uh, going forward if you work for a company that uh, would like to support the 100% Indigenous content and um, and contributors to this uh, to this endeavor. So thank you so much. Again, my name is Chastity Davis Alphonse, and um, I am the editor of Makoop PSLM and just feeling grateful for the conversation that we had with Merle Alexander today. Have a good day. Take care. All my relations. <laughs>